It's time to accelerate. Hey friends, this is Andy. Welcome to episode 704, 704 of Accelerate, the sales podcast of record. It's the first week of Q2 of the second quarter, 2019. How did everyone finish off March and Q1? Finish off strong? Ready to start the second quarter strong? Well, to help you, got a great episode lined up for you today. Joining me as my guest is Pete Williams. Pete's an Australian-based entrepreneur, advisor, marketer, and author of a new book, Cadence, A Tale of Fast Business Growth. Now, today we're going to be talking about how to accelerate the growth of your business, which is wholly appropriate for a podcast named Accelerate. We're both fans, both Pete and I, of the theory, I guess, what you call the aggregation of marginal gains, which is uh, you know, improving every little thing you do, just 1% every day in every way, and how the cumulative impact of that is so big. Now, in his work with numerous companies, Pete's identified seven levers that you can improve in your business that will have a large cumulative impact. And we're going to look closely at those levers and what each lever represents in terms of being sort of a moment in time in your buying process, sales process, and instead of not really a stage, but I said a, a decisive moment. And it's really how you perform in that moment. It's the approach you take that can have a big impact, a major impact on the results you achieve. So before we get to that, just a quick message about the sales house, the sales growth engine for B2B sellers. And as you know, I look at growth two ways, both personal development growth as well as your sales growth. And you really can't get one without the other. Now, one of the most popular features for members in the sales house is my course titled Foundations for Sales Growth. Now, if you want to learn how to effectively communicate with your prospects to build the relationships and the trust that inspires them to want to do business with you, then you'll want to come inside the sales house, learn and master these foundations for sales growth. So come be the best version of you in the sales house. Visit us at thesaleshouse.com or just go directly to thesaleshouse.com forward slash join. All right, let's jump into it with my guest today, Pete Williams. Pete, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Andy. Great to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. So you're joining us uh, from Melbourne. I pronounced that yes, correctly, sir. right? Melbourne, Australia. That's it. Yes. <laughs> There's no R in Melbourne, despite, no. despite how you see it spelled. That's yeah. the, uh, we pronounce everything like that. It's, uh, we're very lazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, my uh, stepdaughter went to a semester in, in Melbourne at, I forget what school, St. Anne, Saint, something like that. And um, yeah, we had to make sure we got the pronunciation correct. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, well, welcome. So, we're gonna we're gonna talk about your your new book, which you've written called Cadence: A Tale of Fast Business Growth, and uh, enjoyable book to read. So, what, what was the impetus to write the book? Yeah, well, we um, my core business here in Australia is a telecommunications group. We've got three or four companies uh, across the group, and over time, we kind of looked at what was causing our growth and what was not driving growth in our business and discovered there's sort of, you know, six or seven key things that were driving profit in our business and found they sort of applied to every business. So, over time, we kind of kept evolving this sort of methodology and started sharing it with people, talked about it on my old podcast that we had for a while and it sort of 
created this little movement of its own and then eventually that sort of has to become a book at some stage, I guess, and that's uh, <laughs> how this sort of somehow sprung out over a, a, quite a lot of, lot of years in writing. A book or a movie? Yeah, well, hey, people, I've, I've heard the uh, Ben Affleck's been spoken about to play the role. So play, play you, yes, okay. <laughs> You're you're the the JJ character, I take it in the book. So, um, well, the key takeaways for the book really is is, and I think that's it's interesting because I'm a huge fan of simplicity and and really focusing on the the basics are that you've identified seven levers you call it of of which is a good good metaphor, if you will, for things that you can control within the business. That if you just get uh, make them just marginally better, that the cumulative impact is large. Yeah. When we started our business, we kind of, I guess like a lot of business owners, focused pretty much on traffic and conversion. You know, okay, we want to grow our business. Okay, let's just get more leads in the door and let's try and sell them. And, you know, that was great to sort of, I guess, you know, open the doors and, and get some revenue through. But we kind of, you know, hit a bit of a ceiling with our growth and we were trying to figure out, well, what was was the problem? We started, you know, trying to work backwards mm-hmm. in terms of okay, how do we grow profit? And we kind of worked backwards and discovered that there were these seven drivers of profit, effectively. Um, and once you kind of identify what they are, the real surprise for us, probably twelve months after we kind of figured out what these seven things are, was we, we discovered that if you have a small ten percent win in each of those seven areas the actual combat pounding effect is actually doubling your bottom line profit. So rather than having to struggle to, you know, double your traffic to try and grow your business, just get a 10% win. 10% boost. Better. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then and then the other six levers, which we can definitely cover. And that's the the real surprising thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, I enjoyed reading the book because from a perspective that I'm a huge believer in, and you actually use this example. And I, I first wrote about this uh, I don't know, I think four years ago now, uh, an article about Dave Brailsford, and who's yep. the manager of Team Sky, the Tour de France uh, or Grand Tour bicycle team uh, sponsored yep. by Sky. And he has this philosophy, he talk, calls it the 1% aggregation of marginal gains. And, it's a bit of a mouthful, but yep. <laughs> and which is that if people, I've talked about on the show before too, is that, that if you just Assume that in sales that your margin of victory is going to be no more than 1%, right? That, first of all, there's no way really to quantify your margin of victory. But if you look at it in the case of, let's say, the Tour de France, which takes place over 21 days of racing over three weeks, 2,000 plus miles, that the average margin of victory between the winner, based on time, the winner and the second place finisher is usually well less than 1% of the total elapsed time. So he you know, took that theory and said, well, that result and said, well, if that's the case, then if we can just improve everything we do by 1%, then that's going to be the margin of victory for us on a predictable basis. So you talk about this in the book is, is they look at everything from the equipment to the positioning of the riders on the bike. They spend endless amount of time in wind tunnels. The pillows the, they sleep with. The pillows they sleep on, the nutrition, as you talked about, the massage oil they use. The, it's ridiculous. It's insane. Everything, the material on their suits, just in a pursuit of 1% improvement across a spectrum of things will contribute to a 1% victory. And I, you know, as an informing concept around business improvement, sales improvement, yeah, I'm a, a huge believer in that because I think I think that's the way the world works, right? Is you can't 
You have to yeah. assume that the margin of victory is so thin. So what can you do deliberately do every step along the way just to gain that thin advantage? Yeah, I, I, I'm a big believer in that. And it's so good to hear other people talking about it because I think there's, there's a numerous benefits of that sort of philosophy. It, obviously, what you beautifully articulated probably better than I did in the book there. There's also like if you're looking at, um, oh, I need to get a 1% improvement or a 10% improvement, mm-hmm. um, it actually gives a lot of confidence and freedom, if you will, in that so many business owners I speak to and sales professionals I speak to, they're always trying to like hit it out of the park. Right. And they, they, they try to, they, let's say they try to work on their proposals as a, a sales tool. Mm-hmm. And if they do something, it doesn't like double the results. Like, ah, you know, I only got a 6% improvement with this proposal. Uh, I'll scrap it and go back to the original one. Like a lot of people actually see small gains and small wins as not improvements as actually like, oh, I only got a 5% boost. That's not worth it. Right. It's, so I'm going to stop doing it. Yeah. It's right. like, hang on. That's actually the really powerful thing here is it reframes what success is. Mm-hmm. Um, success isn't hitting a home run. Success is just getting on base and making those one, two, five, 10% improvements. And, and the cumulative effect is what really drives results. Well, first of all, I, I have to compliment you on your use of American baseball analogies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so when you first said hit it out of the park, I thought, okay, now does that apply to cricket as well? Well, it could do, absolutely. It could do, but, <laughs> but you have spent time here in the States, so... Exactly. And yeah. if I start talking about silly mid-wicket and googlies, people have no idea what I'm talking about. They are cricket terms, but they are the weirdest cricket terms you could ever Yeah. Learn. Yeah, don't. <laughs> I, I've watched some one-day cricket matches, uh, which I, I love the one-day format, and I almost yeah. begin to understand it. And then I, it's a year until I watch my next cricket match, and I've completely forgotten what I, what yeah. I thought I knew. But. <laughs> so... But it's it's true. It's, it's, as you said, reframing success, I think, is really the key here is that that if you're always setting your sight to, yeah, to hit a home run instead of hitting singles, again, to indulge baseball cliches, is then you are sort of setting yourself up for failure. And why, yeah. not, why not set your goals for, you know, this incremental improvement? Because if you do that on a consistent basis, then, as you mentioned before, the compounding effect is – a large aggregate gain over time. Yeah, I think the sad thing is though that those stories don't make the headlines on the on the online sales letters or don't make the cover of Forbes. And yeah. that, so it, you know, people seem to think that the only way to be success is be an outlier, be Zuckerberg, be Musk, be one of those guys who have these massive wins, as opposed to just sort of well, hang on, let's look at the bell curve of success. And let's just make sure we're in that middle and continually growing because that's what's sustainable and what's realistic. And if you do that, you will eventually swing in and you know make contact beautifully with some sort of campaign and you will have a massive win. But it's about like just being consistent with your growth and not trying to sort of just have spikes. Mm-hmm. It's a bit cliche, but it's, it's, it's important to get. And I think a lot of business owners and sales professionals don't think like that enough. Yeah. Well, I mean, my, my experience has been, and I built sales teams, a number of startups is that, and some of them are, you know, all were intended to be high growth. Not all of them turned out to be high growth, but, but many did is that, yeah, you prepare yourself for the big spikes, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you do what you need to do. You be consistent. You, you're growing. You can't really anticipate all the time, the big spikes, but yeah, they happen. 
But if you had, then what happens? One, one of the problems I see a lot of smaller companies have is they get this big win, which maybe you know ratchets their revenue up fifty percent, but they don't have the process to make sure that when that big contract goes away, that they've actually continued to grow beneath it, <laughs> right? To fill in yeah. that gap so that yeah. suddenly they don't see a drop in revenue. And yeah. that's, this is where this process that you outline and I think really comes into four is, is just consistent execution. So mm. let's, let's talk about some of these seven, seven levers uh, that you sure. identify. And um, first we need to talk about suspects, which is really traffic, right? And yeah. any, any business has a requirement for traffic or a certain lead flow, we can call it, um, yeah. that you then can convert into potential buyers and then buyers. Yeah, well, the, the the first three levers I think really apply. It, it is salesmanship. It is really your front end sales scenario. So you've got your suspects, your prospects, and your conversions. Mm-hmm. So effectively, the definition really is suspects. If you look at it from a retail shoe store example, it's a very simple example, but I think it it really clarifies the difference. Suspects are the people who walk into your shoe, into your retail store. Mm-hmm. Prospects are the people who put up their hand and say, look, I'm actually a really qualified prospect here. I'm a qualified buyer. I'm going to sit down and try and a pair of shoes. And then your conversions are obviously those people who open up their wallet, give you their credit card and make a purchase. Nothing majorly revolutionary here except I think so many sales professionals and so many small businesses or even enterprise businesses don't take the time to actually differentiate suspects and prospects. Mm-hmm. They keep the one bucket called leads. Right. And the biggest issue I see is that, and this talks perfectly to, to, to sales professionals, is that the conversation you have with a suspect is very, very different to a conversation you have with a prospect. Even though they're both technically leads, mm-hmm. the actual conversation shifts. You know, as soon as someone puts up their hand and says, no, no, I'm showing you that I am actually seriously interested. I am qualified. I am willing to engage in a more in-depth, you know, conversation. You need to be aware of that shift and change your conversation in that, you know, when I used to, um, when I was at university, I worked at Athletes Foot, the um, the shoe mm-hmm. store franchise. Um, and one of the big things they really taught us, which has kept with me, you know, 20 plus years is that when someone walks into the, the footwear store, the conversation you have initially is not to sell them a pair of shoes. The conversation you have with them is to get them to try on a pair of shoes. Mm-hmm. And once they sit down with that shoe on their foot, then you sell them the shoe. And it was very subtle, but really quite pivotal in the way you know I looked at sales. And then even with our you know, telecommunications company now and our e-commerce businesses and everything else, we really make sure that our team really understand the difference and what that prospect, what that person does to signal, I'm no longer just a, a tie kicker or a suspect. I'm actually a real prospect. And I think so many sales professionals don't take that time to figure out what that micro commitment is to make that shift. Because once you can make that shift, you can really say, okay, here's our suspect's I'm going to try and get a 10% boost in the amount of people who make that micro commitment mm-hmm. and become a prospect. And then once you speak to your prospects, then it's about getting a 10% boost in your conversions of getting those prospects to actually buy. Right. And I think that's a really big distinction. Well, it is. And I think from a business to business standpoint is that what that critical step really is, at least in my mind and based on my experience, is that 
it's how effectively you qualify that suspect. So, Absolutely. So there are certain levels of commitment that we'll call them suspects to stay in line have to make in order to become a qualified prospect. Yeah. And it's not necessarily raising their hand to, to try on a pair of shoes because they could do a demonstrate, take a demonstration of your software and still not be a qualified prospect. But there's certain c- commitments they have to make relative to uh, their internal process they've gone through to prepare themselves to make a decision that if they haven't done, then they're not ready. They're not ready to be a yeah. prospect. Um, if, go ahead. I was going to say, so in, to give you an example, in our telco group, we're purely B2B. Mm-hmm. So from our, you know, selling of phone systems, which is one of the, the core things that our business does is, you know, our sales team's first um, MO or first objective is to get that person to agree to a site inspection. Allow us to send a technician to site to actually spend 15 minutes with them to actually analyze their current infrastructure and their technical needs and things like that. So that's one of our, you know, signals that shows a person is actually not just wanting to get quotes, they're actually willing to engage with us and actually allow a technician to come to site at no cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, you know, then it's getting a quote. That's that's a, you know, a, a, a micro check move that actually gets that person to put up their hand and go, yep, yeah, I'm a serious prospect. I'm getting an actual quote. Um, not just having a conversation, you know, they're willing to actually, you know, speak to us properly, not just getting a price. It's like, oh yeah, it's like, no, no, let's talk for half an hour and actually really understand what your needs are. Like they're some of those micro commitments in that B2B space that really help distinguish the difference between a suspect and a prospect. Yeah. And one I would suggest for you to consider using in your in your business as well as the people listening is is that is you have to get the in my mind, what's most successful is and through my experience is to get the the prospect to commit that they've actually thought through to the end and they are have a pretty concrete vision of what they're going to achieve with the product or service they're buying. If they just think, yeah, give me a price just because I'm investigating, yeah, I'm not interested, right? I'm not going to give you a quote just because you're investigating, you're interested in what the price is. You can go on my website yeah. and get that. But you know, if you're thinking, hey, this is a part of a solution for some problem we've got or it's a solution to what we want to try to achieve, well, what's that going to be worth to you? So I think if if you're in a business-to-business sense and your prospect doesn't understand sort of what the dollars and cents will mean to them from investing in your product, they're not a prospect yet. Mm-hmm. That's a great articulation. I, I really like that. It's yeah, getting, the, 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 getting the customer to articulate what their real outcomes and, and yeah. envision is. It's nice. And then quantify it. See, it's one mm-hmm. thing to say, yeah, we want this, but okay, well, you, okay, you're going to buy this system What's the outcome you want? Well, it's yeah, increase in market share. Well, how much market share? Yeah. Well, two percent. What's mm. that mean to you in terms of dollars? Oh, yeah. well, that's you know an extra hundred thousand dollars a year. Oh, great. Well, let's do a hundred thousand dollars a year. You know, our system costs you know twenty thousand dollars a month or two thousand dollars a month, whatever. Then you just do the calculation. Mm. But before that, you really can't do the calculation to see whether it makes sense for them. Yeah, it's a very elegant they, way of doing it too. Yeah. So anyway. All right, so love that. Suspects, prospects, conversions. Again, we're just trying to get incremental improvements in all of those. Mm. And yeah. as you write about, which I think is such an important thing for people to keep in mind, is, is I rail about this on the show as well as when I get my soapbox when I write, is you and I talked about this before we started recording, is that, that um, you know, people are overhyping what the results they claim mm-hmm. that they can get through their systems and people buy into this and then they get disappointed. You're, if you're 
subscribing to somebody that says, look, I can 10x your sales. You know, you need to really turn around and walk the other direction and try something new because <laughs> that's not serving you. But if somebody says, look, yeah. let's just focus on getting 10% better in these four, seven things, that's pretty achievable. Because yeah. you can't 10x until you 1x or 2x your sales, right? Absolutely. You can't run until you walk. Right. Okay. So suspects, prospects, conversions. Next lever is average. You call it average item price. I call it average price. sales price. But yeah. Make and so you got average item. Yeah, you got average item price and average items per sale. Mm-hmm. So effectively, it's you know what's the average price of the products and services you offer to your customers, and how many items do they buy when they make an actual purchase? You know, are they buying the core product plus some auxiliary items? Are they buying the running shoes with a pair of socks? Are they buying the phone system with headsets, conference phones, other bits and pieces? Are they buying? your accounting services plus life insurance. You know, mm-hmm. what other additional things are you selling in that one transaction, in that initial transaction? It's, it's the upsell, cross-sell, um, right. add-on type. You know, would you like fries with that? <laughs> Salad. It, yeah, yeah. It's, that's it. It's over analogy, but it's real. And I think so many business owners and so many sales professionals do get caught up in making that core sale and don't think about the whole wallet. Um, and whole wallet in terms of benefit-driven. You know, what else does a customer really need to actually achieve the results you had them articulate in such an elegant way earlier? You know, when you're defining that, you know, the prospects, you know, the outcomes and mm-hmm, tangible, mm-hmm. quantifiable outcomes, it's like, okay, well, what else can we offer them to help them really get that result? And that's sort of a, a really conscious thing to think about is how do you, what are you putting in place to actually get those, you know, small increases? And then sometimes, depending on what you are selling, whether it's B2C or B2B, even in the B2B role, there's very subtle ways to get those 10% wins. You know, a number of years ago with our proposals for our phone systems, you know, we had our core offering of what the person spoke about with our salesperson. Here's the phone system. Here's your bits and bobs. Mm-hmm. Um, we put another page in the proposal of just optional extras and just listed, you know, four other key optional extras, headsets, conference phones, um, 800 numbers, stuff like that. And it was a very subtle sale, but we found a, a significant increase in the amount of you know items per sale people were purchasing just by actually adding the extra page into the proposal. And these are the type of ten percent wins we're talking about. Is it doesn't have to be grandiose, implementable projects. It can simply be okay. Well, hang on. How else can we subtly have a an additional you know items per sale offer in our sales funnel and it mm-hmm. could be just adding an extra page into your proposal with a very subtle optional extras have you thought about these things right. and allow them to tick that on their own and you'll be surprised how many you know customers will actually be like yeah do you know what i have just you know spent $10,000 on a phone system i'll spend you know another 500 on headsets it's not a big decision for people to make and you right. can do it very subtly and these are the types of 10% wins we we really encourage people to think about and and, and implement yeah well Great point. I mean, upsell, cross-sell, uh, you know, you use those terms. People tend to think about it in terms of, yeah, something happens online. But but even as you point out, in a B2B environment, is there are things that, that uh, could be important to the customer. We tend to make the assumption for them that, oh, they don't want to learn about that now. Or, oh, they'll be kind of off-put if we bring up these extras. And... Yeah, my belief is you don't want to make that decision for the prospect. You know, if you're doing it respectfully, if you're doing it, as you said, you're just adding a page in your proposal, um, that could be information they find valuable. And you yeah. haven't specifically addressed it uh, yeah. in your you know, your sales process. 
that's fine. Don't be afraid. Mm. Yeah, something else we've done, you know, another 10% win that we implemented was putting together buyer's guides. And actually, you know, so, you know, phone systems can get complex. You know, sure. generally, the person who's buying the uh, office phone system is not technical. It's often the office mm-hmm. manager or mm-hmm. small business owner. They do it once every five or six years. Yep. So, we put together a buyer's guide and that buyer's guide is designed to educate them about the whole buying experience with checklists of all the things you kind of need mm-hmm. to really make your phone system, you know, sing and dance effectively. And that buyer's guide, we make it no excuses, but it, it gives suggestions of getting the most out of your phone system, which means buying optional extras. Mm-hmm. And we give that away as part of our, you know, prospecting process. And that has generated, a, 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 at the time, a boost of, you know, Increasing items per sale. You know, sure. That's another way we implement a ten percent win. And the whole process, really, about all this is to identify what the seven levers are in your business, and then have sessions with your team, going, okay, what is a idea we can implement to get a ten percent boost this cycle? Go through your seven levers, and then you go through it again. So you know, one one win was the proposal page. Another win was a buyer's guide mm-hmm. that helped increase items per sale. And you just keep thinking about what other sort of ideas we can do and continually stacking these 10% wins because they continue to compound on each other over and over again. Yeah. And what it, I think what you're saying, though, is once you've – like the buyer's guide, is that's not, that's not just part of a campaign. You have that and you continue to use it. Consistent. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep, it's just part of our onboarding. Well, and the thing about that, too, is, is with those buyer's guides, small things like that really can become the, become the tiebreakers. Yeah. And final decision for the prospect. Absolutely. And that's another way to really think about it is, you know, what yeah. are these sources of value that you can provide to a prospect that don't carry a ton of cost for you, but that do have value for the prospect? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. there's actually been research on this. Some uh, professors, I think, out of Harvard who did it. Uh, actually, I think it was published in a Harvard Business Review. I don't know if they're actually out of Harvard themselves, but about this topic of tie-breaking selling. And they said, you know, when you do have products competition with products that are in the mind's eye of the customer you know level right there's no real no no one really stands out is the thought among most salespeople is well they make the decision based on price and actually mm-hmm. research sciences they don't is yeah. they prefer to make it on some sort of source of value that may be a little less tangible but still important to them and you know i think that that um you know, something like a, a buyer's guide that, you know, ostensibly they don't have to pay for, but it does provide value for them to help understand the decision they're trying to make and the, the scope of it. That could mm-hmm. be a tiebreaker. Yeah, absolutely. And the interesting thing is we iterated that over time. You know, when we first put it in, we kind of put it in place as a conversion tool to mm-hmm. actually, you know, help differentiate us. So it was purely written as a way to sort of you know, effectively, why us over our competition? Because, right. you know, like you said, we sell effectively the same phone system brands that our competitors do. It's the same bit of plastic, right. literally. So, like, we don't, the actual thing we sell is absolutely no different to anybody else. It's like car sales, you know, a Ford's a Ford's a Ford. It's the same car. So, we had to figure out how can we differentiate and get more conversions. And we felt a buyer's guy was really handy because it could really get people to think about buying a phone system with, the right partner you know it's not about the plastic it's about the way it's installed and programmed Mm -hmm. and serviced and trained so that was originally when we put it in it was for that it was put in for a conversion win but then when we sort of cycled around and went okay let's work out how we can get a 10 percent boost in items per sale we went oh hang on we could improve and iterate our buyer's guide to actually include stuff about other things you want to think about 
So this is the thing is, you know, the buyer's guide was put in place originally for one lever, but then iterated to actually increase two levers. And that's kind of the way we think about stuff. Right. Okay. So there's a few minutes we have left, then there's two remaining levers. One is, (laughs) is, um, you call it transactions per customer, I call it lifetime customer value. Absolutely. Is a term that's uh, used quite a bit these days. Absolutely, obviously. Yeah. So that is... To me is yeah perhaps one of the the easiest ones to some degree because yeah. so many of the factors underneath are in your control right is you know the level of service you provide level of value you provide the already a customer uh, getting repeat business is a less expensive proposition from existing yep. customers and from new prospects so take us through that yeah I think there's a couple of things I think it's although it's you're right it is probably the most powerful. <clears throat> It's actually probably one of the most overlooked, ironically. Yeah. Um, I know for us, when we started our business, you know, we started our telco business uh, literally with no telco experience. We found a gap in the market and kind of went into that space. So we started our business as a sales and marketing company. We were generating the sales and inquiries for phone systems, and we were literally giving our customers to our competitors to do the installation because we mm-hmm. weren't technicians. Sure. So we were literally saying, okay, we made the sale. Okay, let's find a subcontractor to do the installation. And they were effectively stealing our clients because, you know, once someone wanted to upgrade their system, buy more, who are you going to go back to? The people who basically just took your order or the person who turned up at your office, installed it, trained it, and actually built a relationship. So initially, it was really great for us to test our business model. We were able to prove how to make sales and generate leads. But we were getting no repeat business because of that Mm -hmm. core business model flaw that at the time we didn't see. So it was really that sitting down going, hang on why are we getting no repeat business? And then kind of figuring out what now is pretty obvious. That is what triggered this whole seven levers discovery really for us, ironically. Um, but so many business owners, you know, whether they have a business model that doesn't allow for repeat business and much um, LVC, so many business owners just don't even think about it. It's always about, you know, get me the good leads, the Glenn, Glary, Glenn Ross kind of movie. It's like, where's the good leads? I need new leads. <laughs> and, you know, they don't think about putting something in place or they do and they've forgotten about it. You know, there's horror stories I've, I've heard of, of people who've, you know, implemented the seven levers and started working through this and they've realized, yeah, you know, we did write an email sequence to get customers to come back and buy from us again. But, you know, the credit card we had in MailChimp expired nine months ago and we forgot to update it and the emails haven't been going out. Mm. There's massive stories like that yep. where it's just like, oh, no. So, it's about, again, putting systems in place to automate that repeat transaction. And to your point, it's it's... You see it way too often. So, I mean, if you're listening to this and you think, oh, we do a good job of taking care of our customers, especially if you're a small business owner, you're assuming that it's happening. And yeah. to the degree you're assuming that it's happening, it probably isn't. I, mean, I had uh, one client that <laughs> got involved with, and they had, and they did great work. Customers generally loved the work they did. Probably. Like a thousand customers, we determined that they had that they had never really followed up on after they had done the original <laughs> yeah. work for them. And mm-hmm. then a, another friend who was consultant that was going to work for us one doing a project for one company. And similar thing, they were looking at okay, how do we take advantage of you know try to leverage our existing customer base and maybe some past customers who aren't currently doing business with us. He found five thousand. Yeah. Imagine a company have five thousand customers. How hard it is to get a customer in the first place. And then you just let them walk afterwards. Well, I think so many people are too busy 
in the weeds of their business and they think, oh, look, if I give really good customer service, that's enough. That, they'll remember me. You know, I'll, I'll do good customer service and, and that they'll, they'll have a good experience. So when they come back, they want that same experience. Right. People's memories aren't that good. No. <laughs> like the, the, the question we ask people to think about and we continually do in our business is how many, you know, check moves are we making? You know, in, that, in chess, it's like check, check, mm-hmm. check. Finally get checkmate and you win the game. So like when you're looking at your transactions per customer, what automation and systems do you have in place that creates check moves? And you know, that's the thing is like, you know, what is actually happening? Just good customer experience is not really a check move. That's just delivering on your promise originally. Right. Actually having something to actually say and remind people to come back and buy from you again, that's the check move. So what are you actually doing in your business to actually generate that repeat and that's the key is what is automated and actually happening offering and asking the question got it okay well pete we've unfortunately we've run out of time but um <laughs> yeah urge people to go out get your book and want you to tell people where they can get it and how to contact you yeah sure you know cadence tale of fast business growth is the book it's usual you know available where all good books are sold amazon Barnes and Noble, everywhere in between. Uh, cadencebook.com is the website. You can you know, download free chapters. You can listen to an audio sample there if you want a bit more of a taste. Um, but yeah, that's probably the best place, cadencebook.com. And then you've got a whole bunch of places from there to kind of find me and follow me and come and say hello. Excellent. All right. Urge people to do that. Pete, thank you very much. Cheers, Andy. Okay, friends, that was Accelerate for the week. First of all, as always, I want to thank you for joining me. I also want to thank my guest, Pete Williams. Now, you want to join me again next week for a really fun conversation with my guest, Peter Loge. Now, some of you may know, and now I'm saying it, all of you are going to know, I'm a huge soccer fan. And Peter has written a book, a very interesting book titled Soccer Thinking for Management Success. And talking about how how the game is played and how the game is managed, soccer uh, can, has a lot of lessons for management success, has a lot of lessons for sales success. So we're going to talk about that. And as I said, very many parallels between effective management and soccer as well as successful sales manager. And also a lot of parallels between player development at the professional level and the development of professional salespeople. And Peter's going to share all of his insights about this, so make sure you join us. And before you go, don't forget to check out The Sales House, all-in-one sales growth engine for B2B sellers just like you. So visit saleshouse.com, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. So thanks again for joining me. Until next week, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.